0: If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it, and do not turn with me to the Gospel of John, uh, which is where we have spent the last year or so, maybe even a little longer than that. Just a just a few uh, just a few times we haven't said that in our short life as a church. But this week, would you turn with me to Habakkuk? Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. If you're unfamiliar with Habakkuk, that is okay. If you don't know where it is, there is no shame in turning to the index, okay? I can go and tell you that I know that in my Bible, if you've got one like mine, it's on page 785, all right? It's okay to go and and look it up. We're calling this series From Fear to Faith. We're going to spend the next, uh, most of the summer here in Habakkuk. Um, So if you open up, And see, Matthew, you need to turn uh, back to the left. If you open up in the Psalms, just go a little further to the right. Uh, So would you just stand with me now and let's jump into this. We're going to jump into Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to hear the word of the Lord here together. It's Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 4 today. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. perverted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day and the opportunity you give us to gather here and worship. Lord, we don't take that for granted, that this is a gift that you have preserved for us, that we can be here, that we can be with you, that we can be with your people, that we can gather freely together. Lord, we don't take that for granted because we know that there are parts of the world where that is not the case. That there are brothers and sisters of ours right now hiding for their own safety so that they might worship together. We pray that you would be with them too. We pray that you would empower their song and empower their worship and Lord that you would be here at work among us today. That you would speak so that our deaf ears might hear you and that you would you would show yourself so that our blind eyes might see you and that you would awaken our souls this morning that we might draw near to you and we might hear from you in your word. So do that, Lord. Do that for us. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, you may be seated. All right, when I was a uh, young man, younger Man, like back in high school, even into college, I wasn't what anyone would call, uh, a, like a terrific student. Um, now, I was a good citizen of the school. I want to be clear, all right. I, I didn't like get into a bunch of trouble. I didn't, I didn't have a bunch of problems when it came to that. I, I was generally a good kid, all right. But I was not in any way, shape, or form a good student. And and listen, I'm not. I, I want you to hear, especially young people, I'm not bragging about that in any way. All right, it is to my, to my shame and my regret to tell you uh, that I was a bad student. It embarrasses me to admit to you that in high school, I only ever completed one, one of the assigned books that was uh, given to me through the entire time in high school, but I always liked essays because you could just make up stuff, and I guess I was a good guesser. All right. It's to my eternal shame that I wasted so many opportunities to read some like incredible pieces of literature. But there was one book, there was only one, one book that captivated me and I couldn't put it down. Uh, and I've read it several times since then. I still think it's an incredible uh, piece of literature. And it's William Golding's book, The Lord of the Flies. Uh, some of you will remember that book where he tells the story of this plane load of British school children. There's World War II, they're being evacuated out of Great Britain and they uh crash land on a remote island in somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. This is their story. They call the the, the scratch, they call it the scar that the plane made across the across the island and, 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 and it finds them there. And they are they're all alone, right? And it basically follows this flawed hero of the story. He's a fair-haired boy named Ralph who leads them all in the fearful and yet joyful reality of life with no grown-ups. They have freedom. They have safety from the war. Nobody would, nobody would bring the war to this little pathetic island in the middle of nowhere. And they have all the essentials that they need for survival. And so it was a paradise for them, for these young boys to rule and to kind of reign over and to live out every boy's dream of adventure. Now, it was scary for them, okay? I, I want, you need to know that. Change is always scary for us. Even upgrades in life come with a sense of trepidation. Now, I mean, I don't know that I ever feel a greater sense of fear than when I walk into the AT&T store to, to replace my phone. I, 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 just, I know that in spite of the fact that they call it an upgrade, I'm about to lose something and probably pay more for it, okay? That's just, change just always seems to have that attached to it. But for a group of adventurous boys, the island was a virtual paradise. And if you know the book, you know that something happened. Very quickly, they sort of fractured into little factions, and they went to war with each other in in a fight for control of the mysterious conch shell that they used as a sign of power. And it was the weakest among them. It was the weakest among them. It was the most innocent among them, those who most needed to be protected, they were the ones who suffered the greatest. They were the ones who felt the real sting of violence there, and that is exactly where we find the prophet Habakkuk in the late seventh century BC. And so, if we could go back, if you and I could go back twenty five hundred years or so, we'd find a man that, to be honest, we do not know a whole lot about. We don't. We don't know where he was born and raised. We don't know his daddy's name or what he liked to do in his free time. All we know about Habakkuk is we know his name and we know something about the time in which Habakkuk lived. And that's important. It's going to be important for us to understand that that Habakkuk is setting the context here and the context in which we find him is important to understanding everything that Habakkuk is going to say. Everything that he's going to say. And what we're going to find... (laughs) is that we're given a fairly detailed picture of what life was like among God's people during that time, a time that seems to, if we're honest, greatly, greatly resemble the time in which we find ourselves today. And so for anyone, for anyone here, for anyone anywhere who has ever felt that things in this world are not how they were meant to be, like if you've ever had that sense that the that yes, we're here, but the here that we're in is not the way it was meant to be, For anyone who's ever looked at the status of our world today and asked what is wrong with this picture, what you're going to find is that you have a lot in common with Habakkuk. And we see that cry right there at the beginning as the prophet introduces himself. Look back at just verse 1 with me. It's really short because because in verse 1 we read the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. That's the first verse. He calls this an oracle. It's the same word that the prophets Nahum and, and Malachi, they all use this to describe the message that they are given. And it comes with, with a depth of meaning. You see, an oracle, an oracle is most literally something to be carried about. That's what an oracle is. It's something you're given, something you're handed to, to carry about. And so that's what he's saying. that this isn't, this isn't something I made up, but this is something that was given to me. That's what an oracle is. You could literally translate that word. In fact, you may have a a version of of, uh, an English translation that translates that word as burden, that it's a burden. And there's a real sense of heaviness to it. There's a weight attached to this thing and the heaviness of it. The weight of it doesn't come necessarily from the content, but it comes from, from the source. See, the heaviness of the oracle, the heaviness of this burden that Habakkuk's given is is weighty because it's coming from the Lord himself. It's a burden for Habakkuk. It's like carrying the groceries into the house. That's what this burden is like. You know, when you, you have the shopping cart in the store and everything's level, it's easy. You can pile everything in there. But when you get to the driveway and you start grabbing all those bags, it's a different story. I mean, Laurie treats it like an Olympic sport, right? Some of y'all, you get that, like you get there and the truck is full and you're like, I'm going to get it all in one load. That's that. She will knock every, every bit of paint off of every door frame in the house, but she is not going to make two trips back to the car for those things. I mean, it is honestly, it is the most impressive thing to see because I don't know how she does. There's a bag on every finger and three on every forearm. It's incredible, but it's heavy. It's difficult. And about halfway through it, you realize, you know what? I don't know if I was equipped for this task, all right? That's how Habakkuk feels. He feels that he's got this burden, but he doesn't know that it belongs with him. He doesn't know that he has the arms to carry. He doesn't know if he's strong enough to get it into the kitchen where it can be distributed, right? He is overwhelmed because God has given him this oracle. He's given him this burden, and he feels the real weight of it. And he knows it's more than he can bear. And that's because, I want you to hear this, it's because this oracle, this burden is honest. And I know we live in a day and age right now where we don't know if what we're hearing is true. I mean, there's so much doubt that whatever the media says, and I mean, how many people have seen an article shared on social media, you go, that's not even close to the truth. But people share it as though it isn't. We live in this age of perpetual doubt That what we're hearing is even legit, and yet here's Habakkuk going, this is the word of the Lord. And so contrary to popular opinion, God doesn't lie. And contrary to even more popular opinion, God doesn't run from the truth. And Habakkuk is about to lay out some truth. Just look back at verses 2 and 3. Look at this, Habakkuk cries out. There's angst in his voice as he cries out. To cry out means loud, okay? It means loud and intense. He's crying out. He's not just saying this and he's not just running it down. He's crying it out. He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? You see what Habakkuk's doing here? It's not hidden. In fact, it, your Bible probably has a little heading over the top of verse 2 that says something like Habakkuk's complaint, right? That's, that's what he's doing. He's complaining. Now, he's complaining, but he's not whining. That's not what he's doing. He's not whining here. He's not just whining. He's not the bratty little child just whining because it's hot outside. It's like, yeah, it's South Carolina in May, dude. Get used to that, all right? But what Habakkuk is doing is, is what we would probably call bearing his soul. He's crying out. He's crying, how long? How long shall I cry for help? He's given us this idea that this isn't the first day. He's been crying for a while at this point. How long shall I cry for help? What more do I have to do? You see, Habakkuk isn't painting a picture of a world that we can't relate to. This isn't some foreign existence. We know this cry because he's in the midst of a world that we all know too well. A world that's just all too recognizable. It's a world of what we're just going to call today true suffering. It's the first idea. It's the first thing we're going to see in this passage, this idea of true suffering. We see that in this world there is true suffering, and true suffering isn't for just a moment True suffering isn't just a blip on the radar. It's not a boo-boo that we can wipe away. True suffering is part of what John McKay calls the sin-warped condition of fallen humanity. It's the reality in which we find ourselves time and time again as we encounter circumstances, as we encounter events, as we encounter moments and seasons and life situations in which we are despite our best efforts. And our best laid plans, we are absolutely powerless to fix them. That's the reality of this life that screams of our need for what we would just call divine intervention. That's where Habakkuk is. He's right in the mess that we would probably just call life. Some of you are crying this same complaint right now. How long will this child be sick? How long will this loved one continue to doubt the goodness of the Lord? How long will it be before we can bring this baby home from the hospital? Some of us are crying that aloud with some of our friends right now. How long before this wound is finally going to heal? How long until you bring restoration to the fracture of this broken relationship? How long will the person I love be forced to suffer? And where are you God? How long, how long, how long? It's that same, it's that same recognition that life here is not what it's meant to be. It's that something has gone wrong. You know it's the same cry. <clears throat> it's the same cry that David uttered in Psalm 13 where he said, "How long, O Lord, that's how he begins. How long, O oh Lord, and then he says this, will you forget me forever? Now, keep in mind, this is David. And so if you feel like at times you feel distant from God, just keep in mind that David was anointed with oil by an actual prophet to be the king of God's people. Okay, So that's a different type of personal relationship with the Lord. I just want to tell you that. Okay, that's next level. Like I was on a mission trip and somebody talked about sin and I went, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. This guy had a prophet come to him when he was out playing a harp in the field, put oil on his head and say, you're going to be the king of God's people. So David and God had a unique relationship. And he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me Forever. How long, this is David, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? And he says, all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's a cry that we're familiar with. It's that I need you and you aren't here. It's that I'm suffering and I cannot find the strength to even hope for what might be on the other side of this. It's that cry of our soul that says, why, God, are you hiding from me? I know you're there. God, I know you're there, but, but you won't respond. It's like, it's like that panic you feel as a parent uh, when you can't find your child, like when you're in Target and they just vanish, right? And they're and you know they're hiding in some clothes and you're calling out for them. Logan does that junk to us all the time. He just vanishes and thinks it's a fun game and we're just freaking out, running around going, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And you have to wait to hear them laugh at the fact that they've got you convinced that they're hidden until you can go and finally find them. There's no response you know they aren't far away. You know that they can hear you. You know that they can hear the angst in your voice. You know God hears you crying out. You know he sees you in the tears. He should know this isn't a game. But you hear nothing in return. And so that fear, man, that soul level tension, all these things begin to grow. They begin to build up upon themselves until you reach that point of powerlessness and you cry out with every ounce of desperation that you feel in your heart. And in that moment, in that moment, you get a glimpse of what Habakkuk's feeling. This isn't someone who's just being dramatic. This isn't someone who just needs a hug or a little attention. I mean, we all know that guy, okay? We know that person every once in a while. They just need a little attention, so they start acting weird or whatever, crying a lot, and they just need a hug. That's not him. He's not just being dramatic. This is a man who has seen evil in the world, a man who has felt the sting of it in his own life. He's feeling it right now. He's a guy who's living it, and he's crying out to God, and all he hears is what, is what Simon and Garfunkel called the sound of silence, right? And in his desperation, in the reality of this true suffering, he's led to what we would probably just call true searching. Look back at verse 3 with me. He says this in verse 3. He says, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. This this why, that question why, is a cry of bewilderment. That's what it is. He's saying why. He's saying like, I can't understand this. I can't comprehend what you're doing, God. He's not saying God's dead. He's not saying God's not active. He's saying I don't understand what you're doing. Anybody ever feel that? I don't know what you're up to. And this sort of this anxious confusion in his heart, and that cry against violence in verse 2 is the same word that God used in Genesis 6 to describe the conditions of the earth that led to the flood. It's the same exact word. That's what it says in Genesis six eleven that the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And then in verse 6, 3, he says the response of God was to say, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. That word violence is the Hebrew word Hamas. And here in Habakkuk, it's it's like the prophet is saying, don't you see what's happening? Don't you see? Last time you saw, in Genesis, you saw, you saw the violence and you cleaned it up. You eradicated it. You sent a flood. Remember, you saved the animals. We put two of them on the boat. Huge boat. We put them all on there. Last time you saw and you did something about it. So where are you now? He's searching. Habakkuk wants to understand. That's what suffering and searching is always about. It's about understanding. True suffering always leads to true searching. It causes us, it causes you and I to look for a response from somewhere beyond ourselves. This is the cry of every human heart. Is that all the image bearers of God know that something is off. That something is out of order. And so we all ask this question because we all know in our core, like in the very depths of our being, that God actually does have an answer. We know He sees, we know that He's not blind, but we don't know why He would delay. And so Habakkuk describes what he sees in what uh, Palmer Robertson calls three couplets. And you'll see this starting in verse three again. Habakkuk is bewildered. He's confused that God would allow, and the first one there is iniquity and wrong. You see how they're paired together. Iniquity could also be translated as injustice it's that, it's that action that's intended to do harm, it's the lying, it's the deception. It's the abuse of position and authority. It's the man who you trust who is taking advantage of that trust. That's what iniquity is. That's what injustice is. It's the idea that the prophet Micah talks about to those who devise wickedness. It's the idea that they are sitting around kind of going, all right, how can we mess this up? How can we make a mess of the world? I've been heartbroken for months, and we haven't talked about this in here, and I I don't know if that's been intentional or just because I was too afraid to go there, but I've been heartbroken over the number of stories of abuse that I have heard connected to the evangelical church in the last six, six months. It has been overwhelmingly painful to hear these stories. Just the volume of the stories in and of themselves is enough to break even the hardest heart. And let me just say, these are wicked men. These are those men of Micah who are sitting around devising wickedness, wicked men taking advantage of their trust, of the position and the authority, and able to do harm in their own sick and twisted version of pleasure. And I'll be honest, I have found myself Time and time again crying out to God to do something about it. And you know what? I'm convinced that he is. That he's shining light into darkness. That's why we're finally hearing about these things because countless voices have been crying out to God to end it for years and years and years and there was no light shining there. Now God is shining that light and we hate it. We hate to hear it. We hate to see it. But it needs to happen so those things can be killed. God's doing what Habakkuk cried out for. He's doing it even now. The second couplet is there in verse three. It's that destruction and violence are before me. Destruction. Destruction is the. It's the result of iniquity. It's the wake of pain, sorrow, shame, and fear that follows behind injustice as it cuts through the river of life. Destruction is what the victim often carries on the inside. It's the wound that nobody else can see. It's that stuff. The destruction is that stuff that you carry in your soul. That when somebody says, hey man, how are you doing? And you say, fine, you know you have just told the greatest lie of all time. That's the destruction he's talking about. It's the violation of innocence. That's the violence of Hamas. It's the rocket fired into a civilian home. It's the child cast aside and neglected. It's the college student who wakes up on Sunday morning knowing that whatever happened the night before was not just not a good idea, it was not just unconsented, but that it was violence against her and forced upon her. You see, Habakkuk cries out with us that this is injustice, that this is violence, that this is wickedness. He unites his voice with ours. In fact, if we want to be honest, he's been singing the same song for the past 2,500 years, just daring us to get in on it with him. He's the choir director leading his people in a song that echoes of the misery of life in this world. And the crescendo is coming. The last couplet is there in verse 3. He says that strife and contention arise. That's the result of all of this. It's not just the present thing. Strife and contention are our vision of what's coming in the future. He's going to see we're living in it now. We're seeing the effects of it now and strife and contention, are that's what's coming up the road. It's the result. It's that when violence is the seed that's planted, strife and contention are the tree that breaks through the ground. These are the weeds that are sown in the ground when injustice goes forth. It's that these things are what are shaping and molding our culture even today. These are forming the ethos of a people. And we are a contentious bunch, aren't we? I mean, we are a strife-laden people. And if you don't believe me, like if you haven't seen that just, if you dare turn on the news tonight, anger and fear have firmly taken their place of, as opposites of love and Peace. And what's the result of all this? Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Strife and contention arise. He says, so the law is paralyzed. That means it's incapacitated. Saying the law is rendered uh, useless. It's incapacitated. Habakkuk paints justice as a person being shocked or stunned. It's like, it's like justice is getting hit with a taser. That's the idea. You just get hit right with that taser. Now he can't do anything. You just laying on the ground, wiggling around, totally pathetic and helpless. Justice is the hero, but the hero who can't do anything. He can't move. He can't go forth. Justice is just stuck there. And he says this. Don't miss this. He says, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Did you hear that? One more time. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And here's where Habakkuk betrays his earthly perspective. And he reminds us <clears throat> through his example that we, as people, have a limited vision of reality. We can only see what's right in front of us. We can only see the temporal. We see the mess. And a lot of times that's all we see. I was helping a friend with a little work project the other day at his house. Some of you will know this because you were there too. And he's, he's got the ground all torn up. There is a huge pile of, there are piles of dirt all over the place. It looks like somebody dropped a Moab bomb in his, in his backyard. It just exploded, and he's going, yeah, but we're going to put a retaining wall here to take care of that. It's a total wreck. And if you didn't know the plan, if you didn't have the greater vision, like if you didn't have the long-range vision for what this was going to be, you'd honestly think that it is hopeless. You would think that there's no way that this could be redeemed, that this could be fixed, that this could be made right. And and that's where Habakkuk is right now. He's kind of at rock bottom. Somebody has blown up the yard, and he is in the storm of life. And so with his limited perspective, with his limited perspective, he cannot believe, and he cannot see the way that God sees it. You see, God isn't limited like we are. That's what makes him God. He sees it all. He, he, he doesn't just see the backyard that looks as though it's exploded. He sees the finished wall and the beauty that's on its way. And nowhere is this more clear than at the cross. You see, the cross is the ultimate picture of the wicked surrounding the righteous. Righteous. For those with only a limited perspective, the cross appears as the height of perverted justice because at the cross, it's the innocent one who was made to suffer while the wicked find cause to celebrate. At the cross, we have this picture of the enemies of God clapping their hands as the wicked clap their hands in approval and the righteous one takes the punishment that we deserve. And that's why the cross is so scandalous. It's because the cross is, at the cross, it was the one who had been wounded by our offense, who was then wounded for our offense. It's that the victim of our sin took the punishment of our sin. And from the outside, it looks like perverted justice. From the outside, it looks like this must be crazy. It looks like the law has been paralyzed. That's our perspective. But God's grace to us is that at the cross, it's the innocent who dies for the guilty so that the guilty might be found innocent in him. At the end of that book, uh, The Lord of the Flies, the boys are rescued. If you were wondering, I, I, I'm sorry, I, d- I should have told you that in the bench If you've been worried, yeah, they end up getting off the island. And as the Navy captain appears on the shore, he finds uh, what it calls a semicircle of little boys, their bodies streaked with colored clay, sharp sticks in their hands, making no noise at all. And see, the book ends with them chasing the fair-haired boy, Ralph, in order to sacrifice him to the beast. And when they see him, when the boys see the Navy captain, we're told that Ralph, this is the way it says it, that he wept for the end of innocence and the darkness of a man's heart. And it says that the sea captain turned to look away so that they could weep with dignity. That he wept for the end of innocence and the darkness of a man's heart. You see, the only evil that existed on the island is the evil that the boys carried there with them. And it's the same at the cross. The only iniquity, the only violence, the only wrong that was there is that which we brought with us. That's what Jesus endured. That's the debt that our Redeemer paid for us. It's that by His wounds, we are healed. It's that by His death, we're made alive. It's that by His sacrifice, you and I are called sons and daughters of God. That's what redemption is. That's what redemption is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You for... Your preserving power—that these words that you have spoken so many years ago into a time that seems so foreign, that seems so distant—that they still ring true today. So, Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we go from this place. I pray that you would walk with us, that you would hold us tightly, because we are going to try to wiggle away from you. We know that about ourselves. We are like a toddler who thinks he can run. And we're going to try and jump out of your arms. and We're going to try and carry ourselves. We're going to try and do things our own way this week. And so, Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts for that. Help us to run to you. Help us to trust in your plan. Help us to trust in your power. Help me. Help me to trust today that you are God. That you sit on the throne. And that you have this in your hands. Lord, help me to walk in that confidence. Help us to walk in that faith. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you to stand and respond with us singing Who you Say I Am.